The last hymn that we sang was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was John Wesley's brother. Charles Wesley and John Wesley were Anglican priests. And though John Wesley is credited with founding the Methodist Church on his tombstone in England, it says, I lived and died a priest of the Church of England. Charles Wesley, his brother, wrote hymns. And before he died in his 80s, he had written 7,000 hymns. I don't know what else he was doing. (laughs) But you know those Methodists, they're an energetic group. So he was writing a lot of hymns. Uh, This is the first Sunday of Advent. And so for Christian people who have a a liturgical church like the Episcopal Church is, this is the beginning of the church year. So it always affords me the opportunity to speak about the origins of the church year, to speak about the importance of being part of a church that's A, liturgical, and B, has a Christian year. I can tell you this, it certainly saves the kindly old pastor a lot of work having to come up with something every Sunday because we have a liturgical year, a container, for the way we understand the Christian faith and life. Remember that uh, Episcopalians believe uh, a, a quotation that precedes the existence of the Anglican Church. It comes from about the 4th or the 5th century from someone named Prosper of Aquitaine. Did he say Octane? No, Aquitaine. <laughs> the law of prayer is the law of belief. Lex orandi, lex credendi in Latin. And that means what we pray, we believe. So if you were to uh, be asked, uh, what is it that the Episcopal Church believes, it would not be a glib answer to say, come to the liturgy. Because the liturgy is the location for what it is that we believe. In fact, my own opinion is that the theology that has written by the church in its common life over the ages flowed out of its common experience in worship. The first thing Christian people did was get together and worship together and establish some continuity by virtue of that. They didn't get together and have a conversation about who the Blessed Virgin Mary is or what's the relationship between the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus or how exactly do the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. All of those things were discussed later. They're not unimportant, but they flowed out of our common life together and how we understand ourselves as community, as a body, as somehow the leaven and the lump in the wider society. How do we understand the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development and maturity? And those things always flow from our common worship together. So after the Christ event, as biblical scholars would describe it, uh, the uh, early apostles and disciples did not traipse down to St. Luke's downtown Jerusalem and begin to hold services from the Book of Common Prayer. The liturgical year went through a process of development and uh, evolution, if that's the right term to say. So here's a breathless Episcopalian 101 tour of the liturgical year. The first post 
in the liturgical year was the celebration of Easter. And then the second post of the Christian year was the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And then what flowed after that were a season of preparation prior to Easter. We call Lent now. It was originally just three days, then it became a week, and then it became the length that it is now. Advent, which we'll get to in a minute, is a season of preparation. After that, we then begin to have the other celebrations that flow out of our liturgical life together. You know, this, the uh, commemoration of the saints, uh, what we do in the Sundays after Pentecost, the season of or Pentecost itself, how we understand that. Trinity Sunday comes quite late, all of those things. But by the 6th century, we have firm evidence that there was a season kept throughout Western Christianity that we call Advent. And we know this because we possess a text. And the text is called, you, you want to keep this on file. You never know when you might need it for amazing your friends and stuff. You know, we have a lot of people interested in the abstruse aspects of religion, but not too much interested in practice these days, but be that as it may. <laughs> It's called the Gelasian Sacramentary. And in the Gelasian Sacramentary, we have the colics, the readings, and all of the stuff about the book that's on the altar in church, okay? Only in this case, it, was, it contained a lot more stuff. But the Gelasian Sacramentary is the location for saying, well, there's a full-bore full season called Advent here, and this is how it's celebrated as preparation. In Northern Europe, I guess where our forebears came from in the Anglican Church, um, Northern Europe has, has tended, I guess, to be somewhat more austere. And so the celebration of Advent was as long as Lent. It was six weeks. It began after the Feast of St. Martin of Tours on November the 14th. So it was called St. Martin's Lent. And the observance was very Lenten and very heavily emphasized a penitential aspect. And you will notice this penitential aspect in the season of Advent still, but it has been somewhat uh, tinctured with some other more positive and affirmative ways of seeing uh, how we understand our common life together. So by the time we get to the before the Gelasian Sacramentary or a little bit after that, we get a situation where we decide now we're going to do some consolidating and some making the calendar universal in the Western Church. So we've got Alcuin. I've talked to Charlemagne's advisor. Charlemagne's advisor, Alcuin of York, creates a calendar that is now going to be universally used throughout Western Europe, including the Mediterranean countries. In the Mediterranean countries, Advent was four, four weeks long, as it is now, and the tone was somewhat lighter, as you can imagine, in the Mediterranean countries. The observance of things tended and tends always to be a little lighter than it is in the north. And so we have four weeks keeping some of the more penitential aspects of the season but shortening the period of time. 
So Alcuin of York did that, and so the St. Martin's Lent gets shortened to four weeks. The four weeks add a little of the stuff from the north, and now all over Europe we're doing the same thing in about 800, right? Charlemagne is the Holy Roman Emperor, and so he had a lot of uh, sway, although Holy Roman Emperors didn't actually do a whole lot, but they were had a big title, right? So that's how we get the church year the way we have it now, or mostly. And that's sort of the origin of the season of Advent. In Northern Europe, before the uh, Reformation, the liturgical color for Advent was blue. So the blue color that we have in the church for Advent is the more ancient color from our tradition. And in the English use, it was referred to as the serum use, which came from Salisbury Cathedral. So that's the, the origin of blue. Lutherans in Advent use blue. In Germany, uh, what we call Holland, Belgium, all those countries, France, they use blue. England, they use blue. And then as you begin to go down into Italy and in more southern parts of France, you get into purple. So purple is the color that is used uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and in many Episcopal churches. So it's optional. You can do, do either. But well, we use the more ancient color, and that's not to be just obscurist, but because we think it's uh, nicer. You should also know this. In the Episcopal Church, there is no color scheme, officially. The old rule, the old, old rule was best vestments for the holiest days second best for the next holy, and threadbare for the ordinary. <laughs> right? So that meant if your best vestments uh, were red, you wore them on Christmas and Easter. You didn't necessarily, if you didn't have a full complement of, of, of these things. Well, how do they know all this stuff? Well, you, we do have, we possess a lot of um, books and records and things. Uh, they had very, some very fastidious record keepers who kept a track of what was in a church. They did an inventory. These books are called consuetudinaries. And in them, they would say, at St. Luke's Church, Las Gatas, there are four vestments in blue. One cope in blue. Seven stoles in blue. Three vestments in red. See what I'm saying? And so they, they write them down in the book. So somebody who got interested in this a long time ago began to talk about this kind of thing. So I'll talk about that sometime when we do some Episcopalian 101 beyond that. But that's where we, why we have the blue color. We also sing some of the best hymns of the church year uh, in the season of Advent. And, you know, when we speak about the church's worship and Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the music is not just an added extra. It's absolutely essential to what it is that we do. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this now, but you know, um, there actually is less musical pluralism in the culture that we live in now than there used to be. And so even though what this music is in church, at St. Luke's anyway, the traditional Anglican music, is external to the great majority of the population, it is absolutely central to our self-understanding of what it means uh, to be worshiping Episcopalians, and that's why we do it. But um, the musical situation on the ground in the wider culture 
is in a dip I, I'm really afraid that I'm being a curmudgeon about this, I have to say. But you know, I left, I'm a blues rhythm and blues guy. This stuff that we've got now on popular radio is just a disgrace. The nadir of civilization as we know it. <laughs> you know, anyway. Uh, or, or it's done from the belief that we actually uh, are doing something unique and, new, and to us, and it actually has roots and things that people ought to have some knowledge of before they run off half-cocked. But there it is. So what are the themes in Advent, spiritually, emotionally, um, and uh, mentally, that we focus on during the season of Advent? The necessity of being prepared... Repentance, looking at your life in a new way. This could seem to some the penitential aspect of the season of Advent. Hope, hope understood, you've heard me say this before, is honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. A way of being in the world. Expectation is part of Advent. And you know what expectation is? And sort of a spiritual director would speak about this. Uh, expectation is being able to use the full force and effect of your imaginative powers on the things that are part of your life, you know? And that can be uh, the desire to reclaim the vision of who you are, what you want to do, strengthening your vocation in some way, having a, a, an ability once again to touch that thing that made you do what you do, revivifying your relationships in some way and strengthening them. That is part of the expectation that that can happen. And so that's part of the Advent season. Joy, in the Christian sense, is the belief that the ambiguities, the conundrums, the uncertainties of life can and will come into clearer and sharper focus for you as you begin to live a life of intention and some internal self-regulation to enable you to appropriate that and understand it. It isn't just going to sort of come that you've got to place yourself in, the, in, the, in a position to receive it. And so joy for the Christian person is that confidence that you're going to be able to get greater clarity about your life. And remember, always when I say these things, the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. That's what Thomas Merton said in his book, Thoughts in Solitude, that he wrote in the early 1950s. Who's Thomas Merton? He was a Trappist monk who lived in Kentucky in a monastery and is perhaps one of the most famous writers on the spiritual life in the 20th century. So the spiritual life is the whole of life. So when you say joy is the confidence that you're going to get greater clarity, it isn't greater clarity about how the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. That is an issue, but not mostly on people's minds, right? What is on our mind is how do I get greater clarity about how I should proceed? How do I receive the strength and the fortitude to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of me on a daily basis? Those are the things that are are in front of me, and being a joyful person means that somehow I'm going to get some greater clarity uh, about this, even if it's a split second where you come to yourself and you understand. And finally, Christian people in the season of Advent and through Christmas uh, are uh, called to be people of peace. And when Jesus used that term, peace, 
he used the, the, the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom means a whole lot of different things around the theme of peace. It's a very deep word. And he spoke often of the shalom of God. And that's a good segue into the readings today, or at least two of them. The reading from Isaiah, famous passage, and the reading from Matthew's gospel uh, that has Matthew's version of of, uh, the synoptic apocalypse. I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, this is a wonderful reading from Isaiah about beating swords into plowshares. You've heard that read before, I think many of you have. What a good, what a reading it is. And it's Isaiah's declaration that peace is part of the future of God's people and that we must cooperate with this in order for it to be so. Now, some preachers and biblical interpreters speak about um, Isaiah referring to this as a future time when history ends and everything is going to be peaceful. And human beings' experience is that history has not ended and will not end. We are in history. And God's redemptive work is going to occur within, the, within history. That's uh, an, a, a point of view that I have about all this. There are some Christians that have different views on this matter. One day we're all going to have a Star Trek moment. There's going to be a divine ethnic cleansing. And then we're all going to be somewhere else or in some other time warp or whatever is going to happen. And it's all going to be, you know. Well, as my Old Testament professor at Neshota House said many years ago, you can believe that if you want to. (laughs) And many do, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is that the way in which we understand God's plan for the cosmos is within human history. And it seems to be, although for many of us a great mystery, that we are part of this plan. That each one of you, in big and small ways, has a role to play, is unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven by God, and by virtue of that, you now are empowered to be able to be God's person in the world in big and small ways in your life, in very small, ordinary, commonplace, quotidian matters, and uh, some in the the big things. But the fact of the matter is we all have a role to play in human history. And that's how we understand uh, the promises of God. And what Isaiah can be understood to mean here is that you and I can labor for a more peaceful world. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus says there'll always be wars and rumors of wars. You know, and it appears to be true. But we can labor to make it less so. And the priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, said Christian people are inchers. And that means that we make slow progress with regard to how that happens often, but that the direction is where we want to head. And you and I need to be people of peace for sure. So Isaiah admonishes us to do that, a principal theme of the season of Advent. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that synoptic is a Greek word which means seen together, and it means they have the same sources and they tell the same stories. So I've, I've spoken to you about this before, about how we got them and where they came from. Matthew today reproduces uh, uh, some sayings of Jesus that are in both Mark and Luke. And as is the case, there are often slight differences in these three 
uh, ways of speaking. Some of this material, the sayings of Jesus, go back to the earliest strands of the tradition that produced the Gospels. Now here's why I want to talk about this. Advent is going to be uh, filled with biblical readings and maybe some hymns even and things that are going to be very apocalyptic. You know, God is, sounds like, you know, coming in here, divine ethnic cleansing, Star Trek moment. This is what's, what it's going to be. But to understand apocalyptic in the, in the ancient sense, you need to know that most, if not all of the time, the writers who were writing this apocalyptic literature were writing about historical circumstances that they had experienced and were projecting that into the future. So Matthew was talking about an apocalyptic moment that in fact had been experienced by his community and for that matter, the communities that produced um, Luke and Mark. And that was that between 66 and 70 AD, the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and burned it down. And so if Luke and Matthew were writing in about 85 AD, we're talking about something that occurred about 15 years before. And they know what an apocalyptic moment was. It was as if the world ended. In fact, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem brought the Judaism that Jesus grew up in to an end. And the Judaism that continued subsequent to that, we would call rabbinic Judaism. What we have today, okay? We don't have sacrificial Judaism there's some fundamentalist Christians who are funding a very ultra-Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem to try to bring all that back. There's a few guys in this country on ranches that are trying to grow a red heifer with no gray hairs in it so they can do the purification of the temple ruins and now start again. <laughs> well... A situation on our hands, right? We'll talk about that another time, but it's a situation. In any case, Matthew was talking about uh, apocalyptic moments, and in a way he's saying something that sounds really ordinary and commonplace, and that is, you and I need to be alert, because stuff can happen fast, right? The bottom can fall out. And we need to be able to have the resources uh, to meet those challenges and opportunities. We're living as a people in this country in the midst of something that's been going on for about two or three years now where the bottom essentially has fallen out, at least more greatly than any time in my lifetime. You know, I only heard the stories as a little boy. I'm the first of the baby boom. So what did I grow up on? The Depression and World War II. And those two things were the defining uh, issues in my parents' life, lives. So when you stop to think about that kind of thing, now we're in a situation that we're veering precariously close to at least my grandfather's great line, the depths of the depression. <laughs> right? So Matthew, Jesus is saying, you need to be aware of the signs of the times. You need to look around and see things. 
And I think most of us on a general rule are just, you know, if we're living from day to day, which is not a bad plan, uh, but sometimes our, our focus can be pretty narrow. And uh, this is a gospel about widening your perspective. It's a gospel about being able to use uh, the full force and effect of your imaginative powers on how God may work in your life. And to say, if that's a, if that's a possibility for me to do, I can see beyond merely all of the ordinary things that have to uh, occupy me on, in one sense. So it's a balance spiritually between the old uh, term that Dean Parsons used to say to us in seminary. It's, it's, <laughs> you see, when you do that as a joke, it can creep in when you don't want it to be. <laughs> Every time I break the bread at the Eucharist in the season where we do this, I think of Bishop Myers, the bishop who ordained me, the Bishop of California, when he was at the Eucharist in a parish on a visitation and he broke the bread, and he looked up at the congregation, and he said, Christ, our sack over has been pacified for us. <laughs> I, I think about that every time. <laughs> but I'm just going to do that. So sometimes when we were students, we called it, I'm in cemetery. So that's how that came. <laughs> Dean Parsons said, the duties of state, get up, brush your teeth, do the things you've got to do on a daily basis that you need to do to rise to the occasion. And having a wider focus than the minutiae, which keeps you uh, from um, being able to use your imaginative powers in the fullest sense. So this week, think about being a peacemaker in big and small ways in your life. Not peace at any price maker, but a peacemaker, which has to do with a deep and profound sense of communication and respect for other people. Think about uh, using your uh, expectation, your, your imaginative powers. Think about what it means to be joyful in the midst of all of the hurly-burly of uh, this time of year. And give thanks to God for being part of God's plan for the cosmos. Amen. <laughs>